0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the ADSR Inspirations Podcast. My name is James Mallion, I'm your host, as I introduce you to inspirational and artful souls from all over the world. I'm deeply interested in music, film, the arts, achieving goals, overcoming struggles, and big ideas. So join me as we uncover some life lessons and knowledge. We're based out of Tokyo, Japan, and we'll be speaking with people from all over the world, ranging from artists, musicians, creatives, leaders, big thinkers, and those who strive to do and be great. Thanks for listening along. Now let's get inspired. Hey friends, it's your host James and welcome back or welcome to ADSR Inspirations. Our guest today, Ian Lynham, originally from upstate New York, is a 20-year plus resident of Tokyo and is a real pro in the world of design and specifically typography. As you'll see, he's a prolific writer and has been teaching at universities both in Japan and back in the States for a number of years now. He's also got a shop that he runs in West Tokyo and dabbles in music. He has done podcasts and interviews before and has a lot on the go. So I'm really happy he could make the time and we could finally make this interview work. Without further ado, let's get to it then. Here's my interview with Ian Lynham. Welcome back to another episode of ADSR Inspirations. As we delve deeper into the world, of art, creativity, and design right here in Japan. Really happy to introduce our next guest, Ian Lynham. Ian is someone whose passion for graphic design, teaching, writing, and art has left a considerable mark on the creative community, both here in Japan and beyond. Originally hailing from the small town of Avril Park, New York State, our guest today holds a BS in graphic design from Portland State University and MFA in graphic design from CalArts, currently serving as faculty and former co-chair at Vermont College of Fine Arts. He's also a member of the faculty at Temple University, Japan, teaching a variety of courses related to art and design. As a prolific writer, in addition to a number of his own books and blogs, he has contributed his insights to esteemed publications, such as Idea Magazine, Slanted, and Modes of Criticism. His dedication to promoting creative dialogue and cultural exchange is evident in his co-founding of the critical cultural online journal, Neo-Japanism. Since around 2005, Ian has also been running his own design studio, Ian Linham Design. It's a Tokyo-based design studio operating at the intersection of graphic design, design education, and design research, where they specialize in identity, culture research, and typography. Ian also has a direct connection to one of our recent guests on the pod, Kyle Broyles, who, if you remember, runs the craft beer spot, Pintology, in Sasazuka, Tokyo. Ian also has a small shop in Sasazuka, just a few minutes walk from Pintology. His place is called Psilocybin. It's a unique select shop that carries a wide range of imported and original apparel, fashion accessories, and it also carries loads of new and used design-related books, which, of course, is a passion of Ian's. Ian also has a background playing in bands and making music, which we may get into in our chat today, and fairly regularly uh, participates in events held at Pintology, playing analog tape sets at the Bad Head events under the artist name Fully Clothed. Ian has similarly helped out with artwork for Pintology and even collaborated on brewing a beer for Pintology's one-year anniversary. I feel like going through all this only scratches the surface on Ian's work and accomplishments. As you can see, it's got a lot going on, so I'm really happy he could make the time for us today. Please welcome to the show, Ian Linum.
1: Thank you James that was the most like up to date like informed podcast intro ever. Uh usually talking to people that don't give a shit and have no idea who I am. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I got to got to do a little bit of research come in, you know, informed and uh start with, you know, start with a little bit of a base for the listeners and I feel like uh there's you know, a number of places that uh, we could take this, but I kind of want to start close to the beginning to, uh, you know, give listeners a sense of your journey and your story. So I guess your journey as a graphic designer, writer and professor, I think it's been uh, an amazing one and I'm sure quite fulfilling getting to where you currently are and knowing what you do about the industry. Can you take us back a little bit, I guess, to some of your early days growing up in upstate New York? Uh, were, you, were you always interested in uh, art and design?
1: I think I was, but in a really naive way. Uh, I started making zines, aka fanzines, when I was 14 years old. Um, I read something in a, this like freestyle BMX magazine about self-publishing and that was like really that was my introduction to it and i was that was very young and i'm 50 now so that was a long time ago yeah. so ah, 36 years ago which is wild and i just was really enthralled with the idea that like you could make your own stuff and like i'd love the aesthetic of it and just dive right in and yeah that's how i started i didn't I worked as a printer for many years and um throughout the initial dot com boom, the first tech boom, um I met a lot of graphic designers wearing black turtlenecks and black leather pants and I would I worked at different printing shops and copy shops and they were always douchebags and uh I just really was not interested in graphic design because I thought it was this snobby thing. I called what I did layout for many years and then yeah. a friend offered me a freelance gig designing a hip hop CD uh, many years later in Portland, Oregon. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. He was like, this is graphic design, dude. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and then I went back to school for it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I was like 27 at the time.
0: Right, right, right. So you mentioned you know your early interest in zines, and then uh, you were doing some layout work. And then I suppose the hip-hop thing maybe grabbed your interest even more. Uh, Was, like, what kind of, in terms of, like, art you were consuming at the time and were kind of interested in, what kind of things uh, were you kind of gravitating towards at this time?
1: When I I was super young?
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, when you were still in New York and then, I guess, leading up to uh, when you went to Portland, What were the main forms of art that you were consuming?
1: I was really much more of a passive um, audience member. I really, I think the biggest moments, I think I was like maybe like 20. I was visiting New York City. I'd already moved to the West Coast and was like, you know, I was making DIY art. But then I walked into this gallery called Alleged in New York City, run by what's his face, real famous curator. Now doesn't matter. And I was just like, oh, like these are people who are like my. Sk- I was into skateboarding as well and into punk rock music and hardcore music. And um, I was like, oh, these are like people like me making art. I could do this as well. Um, and that I, I think that was a big moment. And then. I don't know, like Aaron Rose—that was the curator's name. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was a big moment, but I, yeah, like I think that was the thing. I was never very interested in quote-unquote fine art. I was always interested in things that were released in multiples, such as you know skateboards and commercial art, and you know neon colors, and that that always. And I, I think that's my what draws me to graphic design that as opposed to I'm I'm not interested in galleries or paintings.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. So then you mentioned you went to university first in Portland, and then you kind of got introduced to, I'm sure, you know, more art and, um, perhaps, you know, different avenues to sort of, uh, make a career with design like did you always kind of figure that you'd be able to this is something that you'd be able to make a living at or was it kind of uh a little bit tough figuring out how you're gonna make it uh, how are you gonna make it work you know you were initially at portland and then um i believe you went off to the west coast after that um In terms of like ideas about jobs and thinking about making a career with design and art, um, how was that process?
1: It was incredibly daunting. So um, I initially went to school in New York State, outside of New York City, and went to school for about a year and dropped out. And then I moved to the West Coast and I was playing in hardcore bands and making zines and working as a printer and uh, a photocopier photocopy chain Kinkos for about six years. And then I went back to school in Portland. I'd already lived in Oakland, California, and moved up to Portland and um discovered that a lot of what I was doing could be termed like a mutant variant of graphic design. And then I went to school and it was a really bad school. And that wasn't super duper helpful in terms of trying to figure out how to exist in the commercial realm Um, but I knew that I wanted a life that was rich with design Um, and Portland at that time was uh, super tiny compared to what it is now um, economically and financially Um, and it it just wasn't it was referred to at that time quote, as a place where designers go to die because (laughs) You, hopefully you'd made your money and you went there to retire because it was affordable to live. Um, I'd already worked at, you know, some of the more successful design studios there. But, I don't know, I think I had like probably 50 job interviews. I got one production job and it was just terrifying. So I just went to grad school. I like, was already in debt. So I was like, all right, I'm going to just double down on this thing. And if I'm screwed, well, I'm kind of already screwed. So, <laughs>
0: Right, right, right. Okay, right. So you had a bit of experience on the West Coast, and then uh, you went down to Portland, and then sort of trying to figure out what you're going to do next. You go to uh, Cal State, was it? uh, Or Cal Arts. Cal Arts in LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so you're doing your master's at that point. And so was that... Was that, um, a little more reassuring in terms of, uh, you know, where you could, uh, take art and I guess the skills you were learning and the contacts you were making, or was it still a little bit, uh, fuzzy what you were going to do with this whole, uh, art and design thing?
1: I mean, it was super fuzzy, but at the same time I had faculty that were much more invested in me. Um. One of my faculty was a really, really, really great guy who's a dear friend named Michael Worthington. And when I graduated, he gave me one of his clients, which is not something most professors do. So that was really sweet. Um, And just, I got out of school and the school I went to, like, um historically, stylistically has been known for very postmodern, very eclectic design. I had a portfolio full of that stuff. And then I had the schlocky advertising oriented stuff that I'd done before. And I just realized like, oh, like grad school is great. And undergrad was great, but like all this education, that's not going to help me in terms of work. So I had to put together a commercial portfolio that melded the postmodern with the commercial. And I just had to go out and hit the streets. And that's what I did. So um, for the better part of a year after graduating i went out and just amassed clients so i got a client roster of about 25 different small businesses um i was very interested in moving to tokyo and i needed money so that's what i did was just kind of like just any kind of work i could do just
0: did it so, right right yeah. right right so where, where were you living at this time
1: uh, it was called mid city in LA. It's just like really like dead center of Los Angeles between the East side and the left side. So, mm-hmm. uh, at that point it was, yeah, fraught with interesting kinds of folks, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> got out of there as quickly as possible. Headed over here.
0: So. Okay. Right on. So I guess you're doing like a bunch of, uh, freelance work. And like you mentioned, you were trying to just raise oh. some funds and, uh, like you said, get over to Asia or get over to Japan. Uh, I'm also interested, you know, in, in that journey and uh, that interest in Japan. When, when would you say that started? Uh, like, were you exposed to Japanese art and exposed to Japanese culture um, around this time? Or was that a little bit earlier? What, what, uh, what kind of brought that on?
1: I moved here in 2005, but I visited Tokyo in 1998. I did a tour, a national tour with a noise band. Um, and that was my first time. Was it? No, I've been, no, I've been out of the country a couple times outside of the U S but um, I don't know, like coming here, I was just so astonished by the visual culture, just like really the the everyday visual culture and just the language and everything. Um, that it, it just, you know, my jaw just kind of hit the ground like every day, like leaving the assorted places where I stayed and it was very like infatuated with everyday life in Japan. Um, it wasn't so, I mean, like, I I came here before I was a designer, and, but I was, was very enthralled with the visual culture. And I don't know, yeah. And, and like, at this point, when I was living in LA, I was dating someone who is uh, double. They're, they're someone who um, was largely raised here, and that very much incentivized me moving here.
0: So, um, yeah. Right, right, right. so your first experiences were really, like you said, touring with your band and you said you did like a national tour like what what cities uh, did you visit on your first uh, on your first trip here?
1: All right, so when I say national tour, please know <laughs> we were taking the to was it to to and keep it, so like the, the 18 years uh, and over. Ticket where it was like you can't ride the, the Shinkansen, the bullet train, you can only ride local trains throughout the country. It was a joke. Um, but it was three of us. We played in Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto, Beppu, which is a weird place, uh, Miyazaki, Kitakyushu, Fukuoka. I think that's it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: In terms it was, of, I mean, uh, it
1: was like a very DIY affair. Sorry.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. I was just going to ask, like, how, how did you, uh, how did you make that tour work? And uh, like, did you have contacts and stuff over here?
1: My friend Alex Usumov um, was the person who was invited. He, he was contacted by uh, this at that point like indie popular guitarist named KK Null, who was playing in a band called Zenikeva, which is like noise, art, metal, post-hardcore guitarist. Um, Yeah, and he just invited me to come along because he liked another band that I was in. And my friend Josh just did yoga on stage with us. (laughs) I wore a polar bear costume and attacked people. And (laughs) Alex actually played the power violent
0: and electronics (laughs) nice nice um so on that first experience like in terms of uh you know meeting japanese people or like taking in um forms of art here did you did you have time to do that or was it all like pretty quick
1: no loads of time i mean we really like set up our own tour Uh, alex did all the heavy lifting there and just uh, i don't know just got to Particularly in Tokyo, we met a woman named uh, Rumi Miyoshi who took us around and just kind of really introduced us to like noise and scum culture throughout Japan and it turned into a lifelong friend and um, yeah, she, she was really for me, like she introduced me to the finer points of Japanese visual culture. Um, but we had, yeah, loads of time to check things out. And I don't think we hit any galleries or anything. It was more just taking it all in. I mean, I was absolutely gobsmacked and I didn't speak any Japanese at the time. And I was so culture shocked that, yeah, I just was like, I don't know, I was just like getting punched in the face with visual culture every day.
0: So. Right. Yeah, 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 definitely. So, right, that, that initial trip seems to have definitely – planted, uh, planted a seed in your head. And then, uh, when you were, uh, in California, you were just kind of scrambling around and just thinking, okay, I gotta, I gotta get back to Japan. Um, so, you know, you saved up enough money and you got a ticket. So what was, what was your goal or what was your plan? Uh, when you initially came here then after, uh, after working for a bit and saving the money?
1: Um, I, had, I had three goals. I wanted to work with this architecture firm called Klein Dytham Architecture. I really admired the graphic designers that they worked with, a group called Namaiki that is still around. They're doing fine art, but not design. So that at that point, I was very interested in motion graphics, so graphic design that moves. Um, they at that point was a hybrid record label slash design studio within the advertising agency, Wieden and Kennedy um, called WK Tokyo lab. And they were making the most compelling motion graphics in the world at that time. I really wanted to work with them and I really wanted to teach design. And I was able to like basically check all those boxes within two years of moving here. Advice for everybody, like set bigger life goals. Like once you, check your boxes yeah i don't know it makes the future far more interesting but um i don't know yeah i was able to like accomplish my quote unquote life goals pretty early which involved being here and moving here i didn't uh i don't come from money so the notion of like moving to another country was just absolutely anathema to me i did not think that would ever happen um, I thought I would just be a working slob for the rest of my life, which I am. But <laughs> yeah, now I'm a fancy professor, which is something I never thought would happen either.
0: <laughs> right, but um, you did mention that was on one of your goals to be uh, to be teaching art or design, right? Yeah. So very much so. I'm I'm curious then, like, what was the what was the process of? getting into that role like initially
1: um i think it was you know when i went back to school all right so okay i should preface this like i went to school i dropped out and then i was constantly going to community colleges in the united states and like taking classes here and there so i because i was just interested in culture but um couldn't, I didn't know how to, how or what I would professionalize in until I found Graphic Design, Um, and I just find colleges and universities and institutions of quote unquote higher learning to be incredibly, uh, inspirational because they're so uncomfortable. Usually they're usually just like shitty spaces to be in. And I like a lot of discomfort in my life and I don't know. Yeah. So like. I think that was the thing, and then like I would have these amazing conversations with amazing people, and I don't know, like like the most like formative experience that I had with a college professor was when I first went to school. Like my my professor was slowly like not rapidly balding in class but like not typical male pattern baldness it was like he was balding like sideways and one day in class i was like man what is up with your hair and he was like oh i'm an adjunct professor i don't make a lot of money so i can't afford health insurance so what i do i cut my hand very badly it's been bandaged this whole time the semester i was like oh yeah, yeah and he was like yeah i've been taking tetracycline um basically what's used to um sterilize fish tanks Um, using basically that to, as instead of like traditional antibiotics, I mean, it's a traditional antibiotic, but instead of the thing that's designed for humans, I was just like, man, that's wild. And it's making your hair fall out. He was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's fine, but it's not going to kill me. I was like, all right. So like those kind of like weird conversations were always with professors. And I was like, I want to be that weird dude (laughs) doing that like weird DIY medicine kind of thing. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Right, right, right so uh in terms of like making making that happen uh you mentioned you know you were in the country a few years uh i guess initially like what kind of uh what kind of visa were you on when you first came here
1: oh when i first came here i was teaching english on Mm -hmm. saturdays to get my visa Um, Mm -hmm. my ex-girlfriend's mom worked at this private english uh language school and she hooked me up with this ridiculous job, like teaching. I think it was two classes on Saturdays at Toshiba's training center um, mm-hmm. to get a visa, which is insane, and like just in terms of like the l- least amount of labor possible. So I was mm-hmm. doing that, and then doing my design studio because I didn't realize I could self-sponsor at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. So you you're doing like your design stuff most of the time. <laughs> Doing that for Visa, um, how like how was it um, finding clients and getting work uh, with your design studio in the initial couple years when you were here? That
1: was so solid. Um, just Tokyo. So I moved here 18 years ago. So um, the design scene here has changed since then. Um, at that point, there were probably maybe a hundred foreign designers work here, max. Now it's thousands. So there were just folks that needed work done and I would just cold call people on and just be like, Hey, I'm a graphic designer. I'd love to like show you my work. I like what you do. I would talk about their work and I only approached people I was interested in working with It went really well. So oh. I think that's, you know, just reaching out to folks. Mm. That was, that was key.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. So yeah, I guess slowly but surely you were able to kind of amass enough clients and you were able to sort of make it work. Uh, Did you find like, um, the language aspect tricky or you were dealing mainly with like foreign clients or a mix of both?
1: A mix of both, but primarily foreign clients at first. I was just approaching basically every single interesting foreign owned or foreign run business in japan at that point or in tokyo at that point um but it went like really smoothly in terms of client relations that was great um linguistically that was rough like i moved here like i had taken theoretically taken one community college class of japanese i knew how to count to three and say yes and no. And that was it. I didn't understand anything. That was a many, many year process until I got a lot better with the, you know, with Japanese,
0: so. Right, right, right. Okay, right, so that's cool. Um, you're getting some clients, yeah, making the design studio work. Um, I guess, like, did you feel like you could do that alone? Or like, did you always, still want to do teaching as well. Like, um, I know like, you know, there's a bunch of people who would have been, you know, happy with just running a design studio and not necessarily doing all the writing, all the teaching, all the other collaborations and the things that you do. Um, what were, what were your thoughts on, you know, doing all those extra things instead of just focusing on, uh, getting more clients or building up the design studio?
1: I figured out really early that um, graphic design running a studio is always a feast or famine thing. Um, you, I, I got out of grad school with a staggering amount of debt as well. Um, I realized that you need multiple income streams or you don't need it. You can just run a design studio, but you're going to set yourself back debt wise about 15 years. So And it just, you know, I just had a lot of drive. And um, I was really, really not interested in teaching English. I did that for a year on Saturdays just to get the visa. Then I sweet-talked the school into still providing me a visa in exchange for theoretically helping when they needed their website updated, which websites don't need that much updating usually. So, shouts to... Walter Arnold at A I T K K, who is a sweet, sweet, sweet dear man from Georgia who like he wrote my visa for like five years for (laughs) I did nothing for that man, which is insane. Like people don't luck out like that anymore. Or at that point either. Um so I got out of the English teaching thing because I was like I hated that. I was super not interested in that, but I was very interested in teaching design. Mm -hmm. Um and I started teaching at Temple University, Japan. And it paid, like, like I was teaching in the continuing education department at first. And it didn't pay great, but it got my feet wet in terms of teaching design professionally. I just realized, you know, if I was able to adjunct and then become full-time, that would be one income stream. And most people who teach, quote-unquote, full-time, it's not a full-time job. It's, it's a part-time job with a full-time salary. So if I could do that, plus do the design studio plus I also run a type foundry design fonts if I could get that royalty based income as well and then whatever other work I needed to do I could pay off my student loans as quickly as possible
0: right 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 okay so that's cool so early on um, in, in terms of getting that job at Temple uh, that was pretty straightforward like how did you go about applying and getting the job and um, it all went pretty smooth
1: yeah I, like, now. I, like, sent my resume, like, five or six times. That was, each email was ignored. Uh, And I just, I found that they had a continuing education program, so an adult learning program. So, and I emailed them, and I never heard back. So, I just went in one day and asked for the director of continuing education. I met her, a really, really wonderful woman named uh, Eugenia Medrano. Um, and just introduced myself, and she was like, oh, you're charming. You can teach a class. You've got a master's degree. I was like, please and thank you. Yes, that would be great. Thanks. You don't return my emails." she was like, oh, sorry. And so I got that, and then um, basically bullied my way into the undergraduate program by just like showing up all the time and just being like, hey, I'm here. And the faculty were like, just like, who are you? Get out of here until – they had somebody who basically quit mid semester and then they were just like, Oh, all right, dude, you're, you're up. And I was like, sick. And then just got my hooks in and never left.
0: So cool. Cool. Yeah. I guess, uh, that's, uh, that's a lesson in itself then for people to, uh, take in, uh, you weren't, you weren't really, uh, taking no for an answer at that point then.
1: I mean, Temple at that point, like it was run out of like two office buildings. It was, it was a pretty wild, like quote unquote institution. So it seemed like, all right, this is, this is doable. And like my ex's uh, little sister had been going there and she was always complaining about the place. So I don't know, that sounds pretty good. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I like uncomfortable spaces and it seemed pretty uncomfortable, but it's turned into a comfortable place. Since, so.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, um, I guess you know you've been you've been teaching for a while now, and as well um, without even getting into some of your other teaching jobs that you've had since then. Um, were you kind of? So I guess the the other main uh, the other main teaching gig uh, would be the Vermont College one, and then you've done some other mm-hmm. sort of um i guess more like temporary uh or just like semesters or lectures things like that um in in terms of that vermont college um you were well you were co-chair at one point and faculty i guess you're still you're still faculty you're still working yeah. uh teaching classes there too um i'm curious like did you search that one out or how did, like, did you always kind of want to keep expanding on your teaching?
1: I mean, I, be, I was teaching undergrad for many, many years, and that was great. And um, basically, I had an exhibition in Portland, Oregon. Oh, God, I, want, I don't remember what year this was. I'm going to say like 2008. And um, I put out a small zine. It was a 10-year res- retrospective of design work. And put out a small zine of um, my writing and I basically two people ordered the zine online after the exhibition closed. Um, both of these people were named Silas and one of them is a guy named Silas Monroe, who was the founding chair of Vermont College of Fine Arts MFA graphic design program. Um, there were three essays in the zine. One was about an experimental architectural site. One was about R. Kelly and one was about hot dogs. Um, and they weren't really about those things, but those were like the connecting themes and he really enjoyed them and um, asked me to be a guest lecturer at Vermont college of fine arts. And after our, he's, he was someone who also went to Cal arts for mm-hmm. his master's in graphic design. And after our initial conversation uh, on skype he like called me right back and he was like dude do you just want to be faculty and i was like yes that would be sick because i wanted to teach in a master's program um wow. and yeah and i've been teaching in that program for 11 years now i was chair well i was co-chair then chair then co-chair again for a number of years yeah. And that is um, a really, really amazing low-residency program. Um, The headquarters is in Vermont. We have residencies in Colorado and in Pennsylvania twice a year. Um, It's a really custom-tailored, student-centered master's program in graphic design that's unlike any other educational institution I've taught in, um, in terms of being student-centered students are at the forefront it's we're very interested in not inflicting inflicting any pedagogical damage um it is the most thoughtful caring i hate this term but mindful design program in the world Mm. it is tremendous i'm so happy to be part of that faculty and it's just, it's been transformative for my life and for the lives of almost everyone that's been involved in the program.
0: So in terms of making that work, um, you know, obviously Vermont and Tokyo are worlds away. Uh, how, how, how do you make it work? Like how does the schedule work? Um, do you physically have to be there? Uh, are they online classes? Um, is it a mix of both? How does, uh, how does that work out?
1: It's a mix of both. Um, we have basically two residencies a year, every summer and every winter. Um, the summer one is held in Colorado. The winter one is held in Pennsylvania. Um, basically, nobody lives in these sites where everybody flies in. And we do all the traditional grad school stuff for a week. So exhibitions, anti-exhibitions, looking at process work, uh, lectures, critiques, workshops, etc. cetera. Um, during that residency, there are about a dozen faculty. The faculty are matched with a handful of students. And you work in a one-on-one uh, mentor-mentee role with the students <coughs> for a six-month semester. So basically, you meet a residency, get matched up with folks. And then you're off and running for the next six months. Basically, the students do um, what's called a packet of work, usually something that represents 100 hours of work weekly. um, Sorry, not weekly, monthly for a month. And then they turn in the work to their faculty mentor. And then you meet with the students remotely and go over the work. And you do that monthly for six months. And then we have residency again so and so 2 there they're both like two year and three year tracks for the master's degree in graphic design
0: right 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 okay so yeah i guess you can you can fit it in with your life in tokyo and your teaching and your design work here right i'm i'm kind of curious like for example um i don't i don't necessarily want to use this word but like if uh you were offered let's say like a more prestigious or like something that you really connected with, like you mentioned, uh, you know, the Vermont college of arts. Um, if you were offered this university job that required you to be full time, let's say in, you know, Vermont or California or New York, is that something that, um, you've, ever been offered has ever crossed your mind um things like this
1: yeah i was offered a job in california and i was offered another job in seoul in north in korea um i turned them both down i i love tokyo i've lived here longer than anywhere i've ever lived which is kind of weird i realized that like a month ago like oh like i've lived here for longer than I've lived anywhere and I just love it here and I don't want to leave.
0: So mm, yeah. no, I'm right. going to stay. <laughs> right, 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 right. So yeah, I guess whatever, whatever offers you get out there, your caveat is you got to make it work with me spending the majority of my time here in Tokyo.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, teaching doesn't pay that well, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, um, it's yeah dude i mean nobody's gonna be like here's you know 500k like that's
0: that's not gonna happen so yeah yeah. sure yeah that that makes that makes sense in that aspect of it um and you know i guess with the way things are these days in terms of doing design work that can pretty much be a remote thing most of the time as well yeah totally Um, totally I'm curious, just sticking with the teaching thing for a few more minutes, like, you know, you've really connected with it and you mentioned, you know, how much you kind of like and admire what's going on, uh, you know, at the Vermont college of fine arts, what would you say? Like, what aspects of, you know, this teaching and mentoring, um, young designers. And I'm sure, like you said they kind of influence you as much as, uh, you influence them. Like what, what kind of aspects of that process really kind of resonate with you the most?
1: I mean, I think the biggest thing is just like being, I mentioned the uncomfortable spaces, um, just, you know, teaching is a great job because you're just paid to talk to people. You don't even have to mentor. I don't view what I do. I view everything as uh, being in solidarity with people, not in terms of trying to help people or quote unquote educate people. Even a lot of the time we'll talk about stuff. And yeah, like I I teach um, graphic design history, Japanese graphic design history. Um, In that way, I'll give people like a tour of history, but I wouldn't say I'm like quote unquote educating people. Um, I don't know, you know, I just, I don't see it as this, like, highfalutin thing, um, just to, like, hang out with folks and to get paid for it. That's a pretty rad gig. So, I mean, I just, like, that's the main thing for me is just, like, um, I am a pretty... I don't know. Uh, What's the term? Uh, I am both an introvert and an extrovert. And those things really um, come out in the classroom in terms of like, I really like bring my whole self to teaching. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think like, I don't know. It's just, it's just really great. I really love it.
0: And I forgot the question. <laughs> well, I think you, I think we got, I think we got to an answer regardless of the original. Okay. Right on. Sorry. Um. So like, I guess, you know, you just mentioned you've been in Japan now longer than anywhere else, but you've obviously spent a good deal of time, you know, growing up closer to the East coast and then, you know, coming Coming again full circle, going back to Vermont, I guess fairly close to where you grew up. And then uh, you yeah. you mentioned you spent uh, a bunch of time on the West Coast uh, as well in America. Um, how would you say, like, are you kind of able to, like, judge how these different places and environments have sort of, uh, you know, influenced some of your sensibilities your design approach your outlook i suppose on art or life
1: yeah definitely i mean like um i don't know uh, visually um i am a stylist in certain ways in terms of being able to not in terms of like i stylist, but i do understand visual culture both in terms of looking at it critically but also being able to replicate aspects of it and to um you know for example like growing up in new york in the 70s and 80s uh there was just like you know that was the, the birth of postmodernism of hip-hop and of punk music and like i was able to see all of that growing up and to really get a sense of what those things looked like and felt like both sonically and visually. Um, and then moving to the West coast, um, seeing the spread of like hardcore punk music and noise music in the United States and, you know, the birth of independent music springing out of those out out of the birth of, um, both punk and hip hop. Like, I don't know, just kind of like, Mm, I think I have a pretty good sense of aesthetics, and like, am able to do that for clients pretty well because I'm I'm pretty like focused on I mean just what stuff looks like in a way that's not naive. That's that's yeah. both from experience, but then also academic as well, and but like using kind of the innate understanding of aesthetics of culture, and I'm pretty. Well, able to apply that to commercial settings, mm. so through an academic lens, but then like it's always tempered by experience.
0: Right, right, right. I guess in terms of then now, like your your history, living and studying, um, you know, Japanese graphic design and Japanese art, typography, yeah. all that. Um, yeah, you know how how would you say you know that's, um influence some of your philosophies and, you know, creative process.
1: Um, I mean, it's been staggering in that way. Uh, I teach, like I mentioned, I teach Japanese graphic design history. It's the only course offered in English internationally about that topic. Um, and solely about that topic. Like basically, you know, other schools will offer like a week or two about that. Um, I don't know. I just like, you know, over the past 15 years, I just dove really deep into understanding Japanese graphic design history. And that, um, I think, is not, it's super important because, like, there's this, somebody, I, a postmodern writer wrote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And the thing is, like, if we don't have a sense of history, we are bound to create things that are very similar to things that have been created before. Um, also like to understand history means to understand one's place in the continuum of time. And that's quite rare for most folks working in, not in anything, but like particularly in creative fields. <clears throat> I mean, like, you know, there's been the big debate recently about like folks plagiarizing other folks music but the thing is if you really understand you know whatever metier you're working in um you're not down to repeat things or you understand history well enough to create something that is strikingly similar without
2: shoplifting so, no. mm. yeah.
0: sure yeah that makes sense um i want to get into some of your writing uh like I mentioned in the intro, you're quite a prolific writer and editor and you've published uh, a lot of books. Let's put it that way. Books and uh, I'm sure uh, courseware and being part of journals and collaborations. Um, you got your new book as well, The Failed Painter. Newish book. When, when did that one come out? just a couple months ago. So, right, right, right. Um, I guess, could you share like some insights, um, from, I guess, number one, like on your newest book and then in general, like when do you get like the inspiration or like, how do you, um, when, when it's time like to, Create a book. Is this something like you've been thinking about for a while, or is it usually based on like collaboration with someone else, or is it something you think that you'd use for a course, or maybe like a combination of all those things? Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious in because, like I said, you're uh, you've released countless books and publications. What what's your uh, process like? And I'm sure over the years it may have gotten a little bit easier for you but uh what's your process like
1: um i guess like i've been writing since i started making zines so when i was 14 and um yeah i put out a lot of books over the years um no bestsellers just, just like i just published a yeah um yeah it's that's not gonna happen it's too like my writing is too weird but that's all right um, I don't know. It's just part of who I am. I write because there are thoughts inside of my head that I want to share with other people. And if I don't put them, if I don't give them form, I will go crazy. So there's that, or I'll be very frustrated more than quote unquote going crazy. Um, And I think it's something that's just become part of my daily life. Um, I write a lot on my phone, just basically just, just getting stuff into a text file and then basically you get enough stuff in a text file and it turns into something. And for many, many years, it was in zine format, which is short usually. And then um, over the past decade, I just started going longer form Um, and just kind of instead of like impulsively just like blurting stuff out and then publishing it myself, um, just, I've been become very interested in working with publishers, especially over the past three years, three to five years. Um, yeah, five years. Sorry, the pandemic just really messes up your sense of time. So, um, yeah. So like, I don't know what the process was. I mean, I just like, I'm like, blah, blah, blah into my phone. And then basically I will have a pages file that, Has enough stuff in it eventually. I'm like, yo, that's a book. Sick. All right. And then I'm just like off to the races and like, I don't know. Like, yeah. And I've like published enough that like can usually sweet talk some fool into wasting their money instead of me wasting my money like I did for years. So,
2: yeah.
0: So, like, when you're getting some of this down, like, do you often think, oh, okay, this could be, this could be cool to use in a class or like this could be something that this publisher might be interested, or is it just kind of like general? And then you kind of have to like form these different offshoots into different sort of uh, works.
1: I think it's more like uh, a
0: dear friend of mine said that like
1: my writing works well because of the amount of anecdotes. And like when I was telling the story about my teacher whose hair was falling out sideways, I was like, Oh, i never wrote that down. And I just like made a note to myself, like tetracycline plus that teacher, like, and that'll get its way into the next book. I don't know. It's just like, I like telling stories, mm-hmm. telling stories is very fun. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's really it. Um, he, other folks have adopted some of the things I've written into their cl- classrooms. That's great. The point is I'm actually not particularly interested in writing educational material, though. I am working on a textbook right now, (laughs) but I'm more interested in just getting what's in my head onto a printed page, but in ways that are weird. Like, I don't like, I don't want to be a boring writer I don't want to be pedantic. I want people to be entertained
0: along mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So, like, do you figure, for example, like, you know, a lot of people, um, let's say, like, keep a journal or, like, you know, do morning pages, things like this these days. Um, is it, like, part of that? Or do you feel also, like, the need to get it out there for other people to read it as well?
1: Um, There's, okay, so this is something that um, I have a colleague at VCFA, Vermont College of Fine Arts, named Natalia Ilyin. And she wrote a book called Writing for the Design Mind, which is about design writing. Um, And she approaches it very differently than I do. But she made a very important point in that book, that journaling and writing are very different. Journaling is for yourself morning pages, things like that. Writing is for other people. And that's like just a very, very, very different process. My process is a fucking mess and I don't recommend it to anyone because I'm just like barfing stuff into text files. Like, and then I sort it all out later. Like if you, I am the most like inefficient writer. But I think that's okay because, like, I don't know. I also then when it comes to editing, and I also have a couple of tremendous editors. Like, it gets better. But like,
2: yeah. I mean, like,
1: if you're interested in writing, you should write a lot. But you should also go out and live your life. If you don't have shit to talk about, like, there's no point. So,
0: yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes a little more sense. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask then about you know your editing process and the editors you work with uh, i guess you've kind of developed those relationships over the years and they kind of uh may sort of understand understand you and your work um in a way that really uh works for the both of you i suppose uh how important like have some of those relationships been then
1: i mean super duper important um the I've worked with a number of, I mean, all all of the editors I've worked with are friends of mine and we're colleagues. Um, It's worth looking at what kind of role an editor is going to assume with a body of writing. The current editor I work with is an amazing, amazing, amazing editor named Angela Palladino who's based in vermont angela is the perfect balance of a copy editor and a content editor she's someone who's able to like you know fix my punctuation i can't use commas in any reasonable way um but she is someone who's who will also just be like hey like take this chunk move it to the top this is what you actually mean and then move this chunk to the end like that's the kind of person if you can find that person and they are unicorns that that's 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 what you want to work with so and just someone who has you know she and i are dear friends um she is a graduate of BCFA and someone who just like is an amazing editor and an amazing designer and artist and musician who like we have enough of a sense of mutual respect where she'll just be like, dude, just like kill this part. You sound like an idiot. I'm like, all right, thanks. You know, and like, you need somebody that really has, a has skin in the game and, and who, yeah, has, has the labia to like do it right. So,
0: yeah, I can relate to a bit of what you're saying, you know, just in terms of doing this podcast as well. Uh, I tried, editing it a bit on my own, but, uh, sometimes it's really hard to edit your own content and then some writing stuff that I do. Um, I think often having that other person and like you mentioned, uh, if you can have a good relationship and they understand you well, uh, works even better in terms of, yeah, yeah, getting your content to a place that you might not be able to get it on your own. Right. Yeah, completely, completely. Um, yeah, you just mentioned that uh, collaboration. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, relating back to some of your design and typography work as well. Like, how, how do you feel, um, like, some of that, the teaching, the writing, your design, like, do you feel like everything is kind of, like, intersecting? Um, do you have, like, moments when you get really inspired to do design work or do you uh is it just like depending you get this contract and you're just like okay i gotta i gotta hunker down this is all i gotta do for the next little bit or is it constantly like you said constantly flowing out uh all these different avenues no man i
1: mean no i mean everybody gets creatively blocked anybody that doesn't i don't know they probably don't care that much about what they do um i'm lucky in that you know, like most design is—I mean, ultimately, like what defines design versus art is contexts. So art re- exists within art-related contexts primarily, so galleries, museums, etc. et cetera. Whereas design goes to the goes to people, so websites or um, chidashi like flyers that come to folks, or um, you know the title sequences for movies. It's got a mass communicative function, um, and most design tends to be client oriented. Um, I'm pretty lucky in that I have both client work, but then also, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, like I have a shop in Sasazuka and with that, the client or the customers that purchase our apparel, which I design, um, but that's much more free because there is no client brief. It's just like, what will i make today that i want to make and people might buy but I'm well, we make runs of like 20 t-shirts so like not that many people have to buy them so they don't they, it doesn't have to like i don't know i can just make what i want and that's really great and that that's the kind of thing over the past couple of years the shop's been open for two years now um That's in terms of like uh, design. That's what keeps me going is like being able to make fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, me and my friend Sam Rhodes, right now, we made, um, we're making this thing called Two Way Tie for Last. It's a zine as a t shirt. So, it's like basically a two t shirt set that is a zine that exists on the shirt. And like, nobody wants that. (laughs) Nobody wants that. But 20 people will want it, or 20 (laughs) people, maybe 10 will think it's cool, and 10 people our friends yeah. <laughs> and that'll be sick.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah. I, I'm kind of curious then about that, about that balance then in your work, I guess, like you mentioned, uh, since you've had that freedom, uh, it's probably, um, helped your creativity. I want to say, or, um, you know, in terms of like some of the jobs and the contracts you're getting, um, like, How important is kind of uh, that play between doing work that maybe artistically you want to do versus work that is more you might consider a job or you're doing this for somebody else? Uh, I did a lot of... So with the shop,
1: I did... a uh, So historically, I did a lot of apparel design um in the early 2000s particularly for the music industry um and that was and also for like uh, adidas and nike and like a bunch of like streetwear brands and like that was super fun but that's something that i really got quite far away from and then since opening the shop um to be able to re-engage with apparel design has been great and it's it's very very different than client work um at this point uh, Client wise, I do a lot of corporate identity, um, which extends itself beyond just um, like traditionally within graphic design, it's like logos and color palettes and typographic palettes and how that's applied. But um, I've been able, because I'm a writer as well, it also now extends into copywriting and beyond that, naming and positioning brands. And that includes like marketing stuff like brand strategy, but really to kind of help folks create the, the true identity for their business and the voice for the business that is text-based as well as visual. So mm. yeah. And just uh, what I do in terms of like a design for the shop is like very, very different. And that's the thing you know, it's like, um, like with food or like with life, you want a lot of different things to make your life feel more robust. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. So this is doing it. So do
0: you feel then like it probably takes some people a little while or kind of getting established before they're able to sort of have that freedom to be able to work on their own stuff versus, um, strictly doing more client work?
1: Uh, I think, you know, a lot of, you know, in the contemporary moment, a lot of folks, um, well in terms of design stuff we're seeing an increased um, atomization of creative work and also like basically everybody's gonna be freelance for the most part so like you have to figure out ways to differentiate yourself and if you're not doing your own work not very marketable these days I would say or your work will not mean much to you mm. in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just doing things for other people, if you're not doing stuff yourself, and that doesn't mean that it has to be like self publishing or self initiated projects. But like, it's just like with anything, if you're, if you're, you know, if, you, if you're not doing it for yourself, why are you doing it? Mm. Yeah.
0: I guess on that same, uh, On that same point, like, do you feel like there's more of a need for people to be doing more, I guess, like self-marketing or putting themselves out there with like social media and exposing, you know, everyone, Instagram or Twitter or, you know, whatever, um, showing off, you know, what they've done then?
1: I think that's just people's instinct right now. I don't, you know... I'm not sure that it's helpful strategically. Um, I've been using social media less and less over the last year and it has zero impact on my practice. Um, People, it's just, it's like snacks, you know, like maybe it's somehow self helpful to like let folks know you're alive, but if you're not directly going and engaging with potential clients in ways that are meaningful and social media for the most part is not meaningful. It is meaningful in terms of really disruptive and unhealthy um, patterns of behavior for humans. Um, I don't know. I sound like a cranky old man, but I don't know, you know, like, like, I, it, if if you are interested in social media being the métier that you work within, that'll be helpful. Mm-hmm. If um, I'm not, I'm not interested in that personally, so mm-hmm. I don't see that as being helpful. I'm, I'm interested in graphic design. I do post about the graphic design things that I do, but I don't think I've ever gotten work from social media posts.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, uh,
1: that answers your question.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess just like in terms of people who may be, you know, starting out or, you know, freshly graduating, like feeling like, oh, okay, I, ha- I have to kind of do more self-marketing or I have to, this is something that like, I have to do, um, like you mentioned, yeah. maybe, <laughs> maybe not.
1: I mean it, it's all like I
0: mean, it depends on like who you
1: know and or who your audience is particularly with social media um, it's you know if you're just talking to folks that you just graduated with that's not super helpful um, yeah my advice that I would say to folks that are trying to make their way in whatever creative industry is to figure out where the people with money are um, when I First moved to Tokyo, um, I figured out that people who have money in Tokyo, they play golf. I am not interested in golfing. I do not want to do that. So I did not join a country club here. Um, people with money are also interested in single malt whiskey. And people are also very interested in fine wine. I enjoy drinking. So I joined the um, Japanese Single Malt Whiskey Society. I'm not a big whiskey fan, but that's like a high price point, relatively um, beverage. Um, same thing with wine. And I joined a couple of wine clubs and I went to the assorted meetups of these different associations and I brought business cards and I introduced myself and mm-hmm. I gave out business cards that were printed really nicely that showed that, yes, I was a graphic designer. So figuring mm-hmm. out, you know, where people that have money are or that are doing things that are of interest to you, that is more helpful than just like blasting 1080 by 1080 pixel squares into the ether.
0: Yeah, yeah. That definitely makes a lot of sense. And like you said, those personal connections and real connections with uh, people face-to-face, I think, go a lot further than you know thousands thousands of views or comments from random people yeah exactly so yeah you you mentioned like some of those some of those early things and those early collabs and your collabs with your editors i i kind of want to touch on maybe like a few a few collaborations like over your career that you feel like have really like stood out for you or have really uh, influenced you then over, you know, 20 years or so? Uh, I mean, a
1: long-standing collaboration has with, been with the, um, uh, the writer and strategist, David Marks. Um, he, we, we did a blog together for many years called uh, neo Japonisma, which was about um, just Japanese popular culture. Um, we did that blog for many, many years. Now that's a print journal. We've released one issue of that. We have a couple other publications in the works. It's like a weird like Showa cookbook that we are working on presently. That'll be pretty fun. That's a super important collaboration. Um Another really important collaborator is one of my best friends. His name's Mike Skerinch. He and I wrote a novel, which will hopefully be coming out in the next year. Um, It's called Chad. It's about a guy who kills death and becomes the Grim Reaper. Solid. That would be pretty sick. Uh, Yeah. Oh, it's ridiculous. (laughs) So there's that. I don't know. And I'm like... I I just, I'm a super social person. I just view like all of my friendships as collaborations Mm. really like that's like, yeah, that's, yeah, I can't, I mean like, those are just like two where there will be like some kind of like, you know, piece of cultural production associated with it. But then like, you know, folks I teach with and yeah, like, yeah, like, um, it's like this kind of thing I always ask my students. I was like, who here likes group projects? And everybody's like, they groan. I'm like, well, guess what? Life is a group project. And they're just like, what? Like, "Uh, yeah, everything is.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess I was kind of anticipating, you know, something similar to that for your answer. You know, like it's not, I'm sure you've worked with like, you know, hundreds or thousands of people throughout your career. And everyone's sort of had like something small uh, that has touched you or you've touched them or has helped you in some way. Um, So it's kind of a tricky question in that sense. Like, Is there, I mean, this is probably a little bit difficult as well, but um, similarly throughout your career, you know, you've had... I guess, I mean, you've had awards and recognition for, you know, your contributions to design. Um, but like, are there certain like moments or projects over the years that really like stand out in your head is like, okay, this one is something that, you know, I'm really proud of, or like this moment or, you know, like, um, this course or, you know, opening the shop, something like this. Are there certain like pivotal moments that really stand out for you? I mean, like
1: I designed the um, interior graphic design, which was very, very graphic for um, Google's offices here in Tokyo, and um, it was three floors of graphics. I mean, like very graphic, not like white walls with you know a couple graphics here and there, but like like full custom wallpaper that was not repeat patterns. For three floors of the biggest building in japan and like i was like oh this this is it like i'm finally there and the fucking client the architecture firm between me and google still like talked me down price wise like after the project was done i was like i've made it this still fucking sucks <laughs> fuck this like the idea of like professional graphic design is that like you know just for many many years um, I was very driven largely in part because of ins- insecurity and instability and not having felt like I made it. And then I did this very, very big project where I felt like I made it, but I was still like talked down it. And I was just like, you know what? This is ridiculous. This is just life
2: mm-hmm.
1: at this point. Um, it's time to take a far more pragmatic view of what this thing is that I do professionally. Uh, and I just started adding a zero to the to all my estimates like and that's a big like thing I would recommend to anybody working in creative fields whenever someone asks you for a quote just add a zero another zero to the end of what you're gonna quote and you'd be surprised how many people go for it hmm. um just because like if you're doing stuff for a company that has more assets than the American government and they're still trying to negotiate the price down it's highly problematic so <laughs>
0: yeah that's funny i mean that's probably one of the reasons that they got to where they are having these people that are able to talk down their content creators and all that but yeah that's that's funny
1: so so yeah and like you know like i don't i don't know it's the kind of thing like in terms of like just a real pragmatic look at you know kind of creative fields like and what folks do I mean, it's, it's really kind of like the big wake-up calls as opposed to like, oh, this is like, you know, I got this award or whatever. That stuff usually is not important. It's the things that are truly meaningful because often they're pretty – they can be quite traumatic, you know. And I think, you know, those are the moments as opposed to accolades mm. where things are truly meaningful. Mm. But that's my weirdly pessimistic view of the world.
0: <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I guess – the Google one is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And I'm sure like you mentioned after that, just uh, stood out for you and kind of throwing that extra zero on your, uh, on your estimates after that kind of.
1: Uh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's worked out really well, you know, like, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I did a project this year, where I, I, I was asked for an estimate and I, I was just like, I'm just going to try it. And it worked and I don't have to work for the rest of the year. And that's really great. So like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, I also am highly aware that I'm a cisgendered white male. So like I can do that kind of thing really easily compared to most folks in the world because mm-hmm. I am operating from a position of privilege. So mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Um you know like having these different avenues like you mentioned you have this big project coming up you still like do you still always kind of feel this need to keep your keep your other sort of uh avenues like your teaching uh your writing running the shop or is it kind of like uh is it tricky at times to like think well you know I could get this project and another project, um, you know, is teaching really, you know, that important or is running the shop that important? Like, do you, do you ever conflict with ideas like that? Or do you kind of need these other um, creative avenues to kind of balance things out?
2: Uh,
1: I think like it kind of filled my life up with so much stuff that um, I'm able to detect when, potential clients are going to be potentially bad clients pretty quickly. So I'm really selective about who I work with, um, teaching projects, well, different classes at different universities. Um, I teach less, um, I am employed full time at one uni- university and part time at another university. I used to do a lot of teaching at other universities as well, but like unless it's really meaningful, I don't do that as much. I guess I'm just more selective mm-hmm. about things, mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, you know, just like for example, graphic design work because I have other streams of income. It's like I take projects mm-hmm. that are I, I only take on projects that are very lucrative and or very interesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't have to do the work-a-day stuff anymore, which is really great. So, mm-hmm.
0: right. Yeah. I think, uh, I think like you said, having that uh, ability or, um, able to say no to certain opportunities is an important skill as well as you kind of develop and get more, uh, get approached by more people about certain things. Right
1: yeah and it's also like I mean, what are you gonna learn from? Mm. I don't think I'm gonna learn from you know busting my ass to make twenty websites a year as opposed to making five yeah like yeah. there's that and like I don't know yeah just like what is your time worth and yeah I don't know like yeah you just I, I value my free time mm. it's I am a workaholic but um I also I really, really, really value my downtime and I don't want to fill up my life with work anymore, which is something I historically have done. Mm. Um, I'm learning to be healthier with my boundaries between um, work and not work.
0: Mm. Right, right, right. Yeah. I guess, like you mentioned, um, it's a process and I'm sure it's taken you some time to get to this stage. Um, You've, you've given, you know, you've given, a bunch of advice throughout this talk like i think specifically let, let's say for example like someone's listening in and maybe they have a little bit of experience let's say in north america or europe or wherever and they're thinking okay i could i could do design in japan um is there or i'd like to try it is there some like specific advice you know i'm sure Things are a lot different these days when you first came over. But is there some specific advice you'd give to people if they're thinking, okay, let's let's give this a shot. Let's move to Japan. Let's see what I can do.
1: Um, learn Japanese. <laughs> that would be the biggest thing. And then, like, if I mean, if you are someone working in design, learning Japanese typography is incredibly nuanced and to do because i mean japanese is historically written three different ways so yokogaki horizontal and kategaki vertically um and yokogaki there's both like right and left reading versions of it to truly understand um what are what's called orthography orthography is how and why we write what we write um to understand that and how that's given form for mass communication via typography. If you can do Japanese typography well, you will completely stand out as a designer here. Um, Because most foreigners don't know how to do it that are here. Um, Most of it looks cheap and naive when they do try to do it. But to become really masterful at that is rare. Mm. Um, That would be a way to stand out and to become marketable here as well. Even if you're Japanese, like speaking is not great, but if you understand the form of it, uh, yeah, yeah, that would
0: be, that's great. Right. Right. And then, you know, what, what would you suggest are some ways for people to do that, to study that? Of course uh, you know, signing up to one of your classes might be one option uh, in terms of like people studying uh, studying on their own or studying abroad, like, uh, how do people really like dive into that aspect of it?
1: Um, there's a graphic design studio here. well they're, not, they're a technology studio called AQ, the letters A and Q. and one of their partners um, that runs the business, her name is Eiko Nagase. Eiko wrote uh, a blog article on their blog called Seven Rules for Perfect Japanese Typography. Um, that would be a great place to start start there and then um there is there's nothing published in english about how to do japanese typography i would start there that's one of the very few resources and then just like pick up some books about japanese typography and start to read those books um i would recommend um in order to build up one's Japanese design vocabulary. There's a book called uh, Obun Shotai, which means uh, Western Characters or Western Typographic Characters by Akiyodara Kobayashi, um, which is a book about how to do Western typography, but written in Japanese. And it sounds counterintuitive, but that's a great way to learn the terms about typography that are written in Japanese in the context that people that designer Western designers would understand because it's talking about Western typography, you learn those terms and then you can apply them and search appropriately for uh, books about Japanese typography from there.
0: Mm, Right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's a great, a great spot or a great, uh, you know, for people listening in. Yeah. A good jumping off point for people to kind of uh, dive into if they, uh, uh, so I guess for yourself, you know, you mentioned you got this big project coming up, you've got your shop, you're teaching, uh, vast amounts of writing a novel. Um, you know, if you look ahead a little bit, do you still have, uh, some things that, uh, are in the back of your mind? Like in, it could be like graphic design stuff or just art or maybe, uh, getting back into some music projects. Like are, are there some projects that maybe uh you know if you had some funding or some more time that you'd really like to you'd really like to try or uh, get done in the next couple of years?
1: Yo, I want to take a vacation. That would be <laughs> sick if um my universities could give me a sabbatical. I would love that. Um I mean project wise I've got a bunch of stuff that's coming out soon. I wrote a textbook about Japanese graphic design history, um, from 1875 to 1975. That'll be coming out shortly. Um, playing music is something that I've reengaged with after a multi-year hiatus. Um, something that I, uh, like never felt very confident about, but I'm feeling more confident about. Um, yeah, I would like to just, have more time to play music but that's the thing it's like music and writing nobody gives you that time you have to make that time in your life hmm. so yeah. i mean like i don't know like i'm writing another book it's another essay collection too there's that but like you know further down the road i don't know i'll figure it out uh i would like to travel more yeah i don't know i think like in terms of creative output i've got that covered i would just i would like to fuck off more
0: (laughs) right yeah hopefully hopefully that works out with you know how things go in your schedule and uh how things go in your endeavors and uh suppose you can't uh you can't keep teaching going forever as well as um working as hard as you seem to be working so there must be some stage when you uh kind of are able to you know do do your graphic design on like a semi you know semi regular basis and keep the shop going and yeah have a little more time to yourself so yeah
1: that'd be nice i'm never going to be able to afford to retire so i'm just going to have to keep doing this (laughs) forever no because I, I i came to my career late and i have not made the most uh, sound financial decisions so i never had enough money to make any kind of decisions i've just been scrambling this whole time so um yeah so like i don't know you know like there's also a lack of privilege there as well I mean, you know I, I literally will never be able to retire so yeah i just have to keep making time where i can so
0: Well, I mean, at least it seems like a lot of the creative stuff you do um, is something like you'd be doing anyways, regardless um, if you can get, you know, you can get contracts or you can get stuff published. It's just like something that seems like innate sort of within you for a lot of it anyways. And, you know, the freedom with some of these smaller projects uh, in the shop and whatnot just seems uh you know a lot of people doing art would be doing it you know regardless so
1: yeah but i think the the biggest thing is like you know like finding the confidence and the wherewithal Mm. and that i mean that's the hard part and that's something you know like i just come into with age you know feeling more confident in terms of like you know, is this a wackadoodle idea, or is this something that potentially has legs? Mm. And oh yeah, I mean, just with maturity, you know. I'm, and I was really, really immature for a lot of years, so like, I don't know, like, yeah, right. I feel pretty lucky to be where I'm at now,
0: right? Yeah, I suppose uh, it's something like everyone sort of goes through, and they might take longer or. N- yeah, longer or shorter to get there, or maybe some people don't get there, but uh yeah, it seems like you're kind of at a point now where you're able to sort of realize um, realize sort of what got you to where you are and sort of where you are moving forward and um cool, cool, yeah. So I gotta gotta thank you for this, man. Um a lot of Oh,
1: thank you, James. I really appreciate of, it.
0: A lot of uh, a lot of advice in there. A lot of uh, a lot of good nuggets of info for the people. Uh, I just have uh, so. just have two final questions that uh, I ask every guest. If that's cool with you, yeah, cool, cool. So, yeah, as this as this is called the Inspirations Pod, they're kind of related to that. So uh, the first one, I mean, you kind of mentioned some of these ideas a little bit, but. Um, what is, uh, like, what's something, or it could be someone that uh, you feel like has really inspired you in your work or in your life in general? Um,
1: I think, like, there are loads of, like, touchstones in terms of people who've created work that, um, has been inspirational to me over the years. But I particularly look in the contemporary moment to a friend and colleague named Chris Rowe. Chris is a Korean-American designer working in Korea. Um, Chris is an amazing writer, designer, and artist, and an amazing human being, and someone who is so prolific in terms of what they do um, and consistently so, and such a uh, kind and thoughtful and critical individual, yet makes things with both with abandon but with a very critical eye at the same time. And that uh, he's someone I really, really look up to mm-hmm. and I, I find to be very inspiring. Uh, his website is mm-hmm. um Chris's work is just fantastic. Um, yeah, like, uh, really, like, the top designer in Korea. Just amazing. Mm. So, Or one of the two. Um, another dear friend and colleague who teaches with me at BCFA named James Che. Uh, James is also, I mean, those two are, like, neck and neck in terms of um, design work in Korea. But, um, yeah, I just look up to them a lot.
0: Mm, right. And you mentioned you have relationships with uh, both of those individuals. So um, you're able to have a little bit of uh, interplay with them. And have you uh, explored any collaborations then? Yeah. I mean, uh, I edited Chris's last book.
1: Um, It's called, uh, what's it called? Thieves Like Us. I think that's the name of it. Let me double check. I've got a copy somewhere here. I did. I don't know where I put it. Um, yeah, we've we've worked on a bunch of stuff together, and then uh, James J and I have I've contributed writing to his. Um, he's got a zine called Pudding about um, design and music. So yeah, and we we teach together. Yeah, I mean, Mike, both those dudes were very tight friends. So like, we yeah. just do a lot of stuff together, and they're people that I trust. I, I literally trust with my life. Mm -hmm. Um, they're
0: the best so right cool cool yeah we'll definitely get the links up on both those dudes for the people to check out i'll i'll check them out right after our chat here um right cool yeah so i guess last one for you then uh the flip side of it so uh what what does it mean then for you um you know someone i guess has attended one of your classes or, you know, see some of the work you've done or, um, you know, a client of yours, um, you know, a customer at your shop, like what is it, what does it mean for you then to be uh, inspiration to other people?
1: Uh, I don't try to be that. I'm not nah, like, I, I don't have the ego to try to, be something to somebody. That's, yeah,
0: I I think like regardless, um, you know, of your intent, perhaps you know, someone could be you know definitely inspired by something that you've done or said. That's their problem.
2: <laughs> I they they
0: should not look up to me. I'm an idiot.
1: <laughs> like for real. It's like it's yeah, definitely don't. So.
0: Okay. Okay. So you, you haven't that if, if someone has been, you know, oh, look at how much writing he's done, um, or this course was awesome. Maybe this is something I want to do, or you've, you know, inspired someone to create when they might not have otherwise, uh, does that, has that ever been something that you've thought about or not really then?
1: I mean, uh, I'm not, I just, I work in the fields that I work with because I want all the people in my life that are not assholes to have as much agency as possible in their lives. Um, and you know, like when we back toward the beginning of this chat, like, um, that is what it is to be in solidarity with people, um, to help each other out in terms of agency and autonomy in our lives. And like, that's, that's, and it, it comes back to like, yeah, I don't know, it's like, got introduced to ideas around anarchism really young and um i am not an anarchist but there are certain ideals there and the idea of folks just having as much power as possible over their own lives that that's important Mm. that's what's important to me Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah yeah that makes sense yeah and i think um it could be like from my perspective like in japan in particular something i've noticed um there is this kind of more defined relationship where it's like you know like the senpai and the kohai and it's like okay i'm teaching you this you know we're not equal uh, or i guess it's more of like an asian idea originally um but you know kind of what i'm hearing for you is like you know you're both on the same sort of standing with, you know, even, you know, these students who are coming to your classes, you know, like 20 years younger than you, um, looking to learn from you. But, um, the whole thing is just kind of an interplay between the two of you. And there's not any kind of like hierarchy in your mind, at least.
1: Well, there's, there's inevitably hierarchy in every relationship, but the thing is to, um, to try my personal thing is to try to diminish that as much as possible not to make myself feel better but because that's what most teachers historically have done like you know the the idea of like you know destabilizing the classroom and we'll put all the desks in a circle and we'll all be equal that doesn't work because the thing is teachers are paid to be there to teach you are there to impart something however you can do it in a way that is friendly And to do so in the least damaging way possible is really important. Um, Yeah. And the whole thing is like, you know, like the teacher is there to teach, but at the same time, you know, you can do so in a way that is uh, friendly and kind. Mm. And um, at the same time, like there's so much to learn, especially, you know, I'm getting older. Like I just, I turned 50 this year and like the, the i feel the generation gap palpably especially post-pandemic the pandemic seemed to flatten things for a bit but these days like it's it's feel it a lot more but that's okay and the thing is like there there are things to learn Mm. you know like um Yeah. I think just staying open and like, you know, like you mentioned, just like the the hierarchy is part of Confucian culture. And though Japan's uh, hierarchy is still like super, 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 super important here. Um, But the thing is like in that way, if you diminish hierarchy within your own life, when, you know, as foreigners, we are never going to be, truly accepted in the society so you can create this liminal like between you know liminal way forward mm. so mm. for yourself and for your life mm.
0: yeah cool man yeah i gotta thank you uh, thank you for making the time uh i guess no thank you James. lastly uh you know if people <laughs> we're talking about the social media stuff before but uh i know you got an awesome website where you put a lot of your work and uh, some really interesting blog posts on there. If people want to uh, check out uh, some of your work or, you know, check out some projects that you have, where's where's the, like the best place for people?
1: So it's just com. So ianlyna com. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the central clearinghouse. And then, yeah, yeah, there's, there's that.
0: Sure, sure, um, sure. Yeah. And then... I know you do have a few social media channels, um, use those every so Mm -hmm. often, or do you, if people want to like send you a mail or a message, just, uh, email is the best thing or.
1: Email or like I'm on Instagram, um, Twitter or X as they call it these days. I do not use that. (laughs) Like, good luck. I I don't know. I, I guess I have two accounts, which. I don't remember ever making chicken I don't know so like not there yeah, uh, yeah I don't know just hit me up or like yeah probably me an email so sure, sure, sure. yeah it's, it's linked there's a link on my website so, <laughs> right on yeah.
0: all right man yes. yeah enjoy the rest cool. of your day Thank you, and man. yeah thanks for the chat you too man uh, that was Ian Linum. and this is James Mallion with ADSR Inspirations until next time thanks for listening all right there it is that was another fun one as you can see Ian has a lot to share with students and the general population, really, if you're interested in his thoughts on design or a variety of topics, including often just life in general, make sure to visit his website or grab one of his many, many publications. That's all for this time at ADSR Inspirations, as always, for myself, James. Leona doing the art and socials, Sean on the post production. Of course, a major thanks to our audience for listening. Drop us a line on Instagram, Facebook, or X. Everything is at ADSRPod. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. As always, stay inspired.